Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, and must say, we're feeling very welcomed, so thank you very much. And uh, I've met a few people, uh, quite a few people, I'm trying to remember names. I've met a few people a number of times, uh, still learning their names. So uh, but it's been good. We're very happy with our move to Brisbane. Uh, it's been excellent. And um, while we are now citizens of Queensland, and look at this, got a <laughs> Queensland licence in plastic. That's pretty good. Still waiting for the digital version, but you know. Um, while we're citizens of Queensland, I don't think I could really consider myself a Queenslander. Haven't been born here. I really cannot go for the Maroons. Um, so there's a bit of a difference. However, having moved to Brisbane, having become a citizen of Queensland, it really has changed my perspective. And uh, I've noticed that in a few things. Uh, basically, everything that used to be north is now south. Okay, so I go to visit my family, I now go south. Uh, I go to go on holidays, we'll go south. Uh, I uh, talk about my hometown, now it's south. So everything used to be north and now it's south. My perspective has been changed. And I want to say today that the gospel changes our perspective. The gospel changes our perspective. Before you respond to Jesus, before you call on him in faith for forgiveness of sin and right standing with the Father, you are enemies of God. Apart from personal relationship with Jesus, you are an enemy of God. But once you call on him, in, uh, seek forgiveness, trusting in him, asking him to be your Lord and Saviour, you become a child of God and you have a marvellous inheritance. Uh, you become a citizen of heaven. Uh, that is the terminology that Paul's been using and he used it at the end of chapter 3. So the gospel changes your perspective. You are now a citizen of heaven with a great inheritance. Uh, my earthly inheritance, my dad tells me, will be a bill from the funeral operator. Uh, so that's my inheritance here. But I've got a much better inheritance to look forward to. Uh, we all do. But is the Christian life simply about, you know, uh, just floating around the water of this life until heaven comes? Or do we just tread water here until heaven arrives? Is that what it's about? Is it how they say it? Is it uh, pie in the sky when you die? Or is there steak on the plate while you wait? The gospel changes our perspective for this life and for the next. Last week we heard about making the, the uh, future shape your present. Uh, we, knew, we were reminded that Jesus is coming back. I wonder, did anyone, write, did anyone actually write that on their calendar this week? That was your homework, one thing. Oh, someone did excellent, well done, thank you. Uh, that's good, I'll tell Doug, he'll be pleased. The gospel changes our perspective, but it's not only about our eternal future, it is about life now. And this is what Paul is saying in this letter. Take a look at, at verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, these are people he loves and cares for, 
He wants the very best for them, doesn't he? You can see it there, isn't it? My, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Uh, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And then he's going to go on and tell us, how do we stand firm? What does it mean to have the gospel shape our perspective? It's a very positive thing. Uh, see, and I want you to know, Paul is not, he's not after good people. Okay? He doesn't want good people. Uh, there's a book called The Danger of Raising Nice Kids. Um, actually, I wouldn't mind nice kids. That'd be good. <laughs> but he's not after nice people, not after good people. He's after gospel people. He's after people shaped by the gospel who live according to the gospel. And in this passage, he's going to tackle two areas of standing firm. Standing firm in relationships, standing firm with your resources. Uh, and so as he says, stand firm in Christ, he's going to show us how we do that now in light of the day to come. He's not asking us to meet a moral standard, but he's promoting the growth and the reach of gospel ministry. He's saying, if you are people like this, you will take the gospel out to North Brisbane. If you are people like this, you will take the gospel out to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're on about. So what I want you to understand from this passage today is the call to be gospel people. How can you tell a gospel person? When you look at someone, how can you tell a gospel person? Uh, well, as we said, relationships and resources, how they use them. Let's take a look at relationships, verse 2. So uh, Paul says in verse 2, I plead with Udiah and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So there's an issue going on. Uh, Paul doesn't say, he doesn't step into what the issue is. Um, but he talks about it, he says, just, we need to get it sorted. He's not taking sides, is he? But he's taking issue with the fact that these two aren't getting along. It matters how you live. Uh, it matters how you relate to one another. The gospel has got to come to bear on your life in the way that you love people within your church. Take a look at the nature of these two uh, women. Um, in verse 3, as he asks... Um, his true companion, verse 3, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since you have content, they have contended at my side. So they're gospel workers, they've been engaged, they're gospel people. Uh, they've contended at Paul's side along with others and their names are written in the book of life. They trust in Jesus as their saviour. And yet there's some aspect of their relationship where the gospel isn't making a difference, gospel isn't bringing a shape. And Paul says this is not good enough. The gospel needs to shape the way we re relate to one another. Uh, when um, Joe and I were at Bible college, we went to Indonesia on mission and um, God spoke very clearly to Joe while we're on Indone in, in mission in Indonesia. Do not go to Asia on mission. <laughs> um, but what we noticed, what we were surprised with was uh, at the first stop when we uh, went to a certain city in Indonesia and we, we met the missionaries and we found out about the difficulties they were having, that the main point of uh, issue, the main, uh, the main problem they were having was not because they were in a predominantly Islamic city and facing Islamic opposition. That wasn't it. It wasn't because there were so many uh, malaria-laden mosquitoes flying around. That wasn't the problem. It wasn't even at 4.30 every morning they had the call to prayer from the Islamic mosque going off all through the city over speakers. And if you've ever heard that, it just gets right in there. Uh, it wasn't any of that. It was interpersonal relationships between the, the missionary couples. That was the biggest issue on the mission field. 
And as Bible college students, we noted it, we wrote it in our assignments. So the one thing we didn't do, which we should have done, which Paul tells us, is to help. Take a look at verse 3. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women. Uh, we're part of a church for a purpose. We're here to help one another, uh, to relate, to have the gospel shape our lives and to help one another have the gospel shape our lives. And so uh, Paul says, help. Uh, he literally says to my loyal yoke fellow, help these women. It's like, uh, it's an image, yoke, you know, you've got a brace of oxen, two oxen, and they're pulling in the same direction to get the work done. Help, help these women my loyal yoke fellow, to be friendly yoke fellow, to be pulling in the same direction. Uh, Paul says the church, well, I want to suggest that Paul is, is calling on the church to be a place, to be soil where gospel-shaped lives flourish. Uh, and I get that from the next section. So there's an issue, there's a call for help, uh, issue, verse 2, call for help, verse 3. I think verse 4 to 7, he's saying, be a church family which is soil to create flourishing. And the things, the three things that he talks about are thankfulness, reasonableness, and prayerfulness. Those are the characteristics of a, of a church where gospel lives are shaped. Uh, so let me, let me read that. Take a look, verse 4. And Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Uh, just right there in verse 6 seems to be a problem, doesn't it? Uh, do not be anxious about anything. Anyone anxious about something? Are you being sinful at that point because you're anxious about something? Is that what Paul's saying? Uh, there's certain things that I'm anxious about at the moment. Uh, am I being sinful about that? No, he's saying... Uh, don't fall into the trap of just being anxious, but being anxious, uh, one writer says, worrying is a reminder to pray. Uh, when you're anxious, bring it to God. Pray, ask him, keep, and, and, and if this thing keeps bugging you, keep praying, keep seeking him. Uh, and, I, I, and that's the same, rejoice. He's not just saying, just be flippant and say, oh, let's rejoice about everything, you know, even when life's really bad, if you just have a rejoiceful attitude, you know. Because look at Paul's situation. He's in jail for, writing, for gospel ministry. So he's been locked in jail. And the Roman jail wasn't very nice at all. It's not a great place to be. But Paul, from jail, talking to the Philippians, whom he's worried and concerned for, they're facing opposition, they're facing, so persecution, false teaching, there's a bit of strife going on in the church. Uh, so there's things to be concerned about for him and for the people that he loves. Uh, but he's saying uh, in that rejoice, be thankful, thankful to God, to know that even in the midst of all these problems, even in the midst of when we don't meet, meet the standard, uh, that God loves us, cares for us, watches over us, is in control of these things. Keep rejoicing in him. Place your confidence in him. Uh, let your reasonableness be evident to all. Uh, reflect the nature of Christ. Now, this is not flippy-floppy doormat stuff either, is it? Because Paul has just uh, before, earlier in the letter, uh, he's called out the false teachers. He's called them dogs and mutilators of the flesh. Uh, he hasn't been very... It didn't sound reasonable, did it? Uh, but 
So he's not, he's not saying just, just ignore false teaching, just ignore persecution, but he's saying reflect Christ in your response to these things. Be thankful, rejoice in who God is. Be reasonable, reflect Christ in your attitudes to these things. Be prayerful, be prayerful in all this. And so Paul is not saying hakuna matata. Anyone heard of hakuna matata? That's the Lion King. Means no worries for the rest of your days. Uh, Paul is not saying that. He's, being, he's saying be realistic about life. I mean, he's on death row. There's every, there's every probability he's going to lose his head. And he's saying these things to people that he cares for to live in a, this world in a way which reflects the gospel, which is shaped by the gospel. So that's, I, I take that as the church being a church of uh, soil for, for growth to flourish in. And uh, I want to ask the question, do you, do you think that we are a church who are thankful, reasonable and prayerful? You don't have to answer that out loud now, but reflect on that. Is this a church which is thankful, reasonable and prayerful? Um, am I a member of a church who is thankful, reasonable and prayerful? Because I think in, the, in verses 8 and 9, um, it's becoming a little bit more individual. Finally, brothers and sisters, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put in practice and the God of peace will be with you. Um, Paul is saying be little energizer bunnies about thinking about the things of God. Uh, be a cow who chews on their cud as you consider the thing. Do you know what... You know about cows, they've got four stomachs and they eat all this grass, they just fill it up and then they cough it back up in their mouth and then they chew on it for a while. So they have another go at it. That's a good image of how, how we should be, isn't it? Chew on the cud of God's word, of the nature of who God is. That's meditation, isn't it? So be cows for Christ. Uh, <laughs> be cud-chewing cows for Christ. Uh, Chew on how God calls his people to live. Meditate on. Because uh, I take that's what Paul's saying. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Consider what you're letting in. Take your mind captive. What are you thinking about? What's shaping you? Uh, what are you reflecting on? I'd be a be a cud-chewing cow for Christ. Uh, it helps us to reflect on our Bible reading, our growth groups and, and coming to church, doesn't it? It helps us to reflect, am I just gaining more knowledge? Am I becoming a smarter sinner? Or am I actually growing in Christ? Am, is the word coming, deepening my relationship with Christ? Is the word shaping me, helping me to engage in this world Honouring God. Is that what it's doing? Uh, is, is our growth group, as we meet together, are we actually encouraging one another, calling one another to account, helping one another to grow, pushing one another? Growth groups should be like a gym where, you know, when you're doing a bench press and you're on your last one and you can't do it and the spotter just reaches down and they, they put their finger on it and they're hardly touching and they just, and you go, oh, get the last one out. That's growth group. 
We're, we're helping each other. We, we've got the fingers under the bar. We're lifting, helping, because we want to reflect Christ. We want, to, we want our whole life to be shaped by the good news of the gospel. It's true, isn't it? It's what we're here for. That nothing else is going to save. Delight and confidence in Christ. Uh, conf- uh, confirm belief that apart from Christ... So grow in your delight and confidence in Christ. Grow in your, your firm belief that apart from Christ, everyone is, there is no future for anyone. Well, no good future. It's an eternity of darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, and when you are convinced of that truth, as you reflect on these things and you become convinced of that truth, uh, the impact will be that the gospel will shape our lives in such that we will want North Brisbane to hear the good news of Jesus. Uh, that we will not be, uh, we will be convinced that no matter how good life looks for people who don't know Jesus, and sometimes that's a, you know, sometimes you think, oh, these guys have got such a good life. Why would they need the, why would they want to listen to the gospel? Well, that's a misunderstanding of what the good life looks like. But once you're convinced of that, uh, then we will be thinking of how we can effectively present the good news of Jesus to people. The gospel needs to shape our relationships. We need to live like Jesus. And secondly, the gospel needs to shape our resources. Um, I think you can tell quite a bit about a person in the way they use their money and their resources, can't you? Uh, there was a guy, uh, a guy I knew. Um, he used to, he would wear a big coat. When we went out for dinner somewhere, he'd wear a big coat, even if it was kind of warm, just so he could smuggle in his warm can of Coke that he bought from 30 cents at the supermarket rather than paying $1.20 for a nice cold can, a glass of Coke when we're sitting at the table. It's like, why would you go to that level? Because he was stingy. You can tell people, by the way, that you don't be stingy. Anyway, verse 10, take a look. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Uh, Paul has talked about rejoicing all the way through this letter, hasn't he? I, I, I can't remember how many times. I think it's seven or something. It's lots of times about rejoicing. This is the only time he's had the superlative. I've, I rejoice greatly. Uh, your, your actions, your generosity, the way you use your gospel resources has turned my rejoicing all the way up to 11. Spinal tap reference for old people. Your gospel-focused use of resources has brought me great delight. And notice that Paul says, I'm not saying this because I want something from you. I'm saying this because I want something for you. You see, not because I want something from you, but because I want something for you. Take a look at verse 11 through 13. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So Paul is saying, it's not that I'm in need. I am content. I've learned contentment, which tells us something about contentment, doesn't it? It tells us it's not a natural thing. Uh, It's something we need to learn. It's something which advertising agencies work very hard against 
They do not want you to be content. That is the worst thing uh, for their business. But to be content, to learn to be content, that's a whole other sermon. But I just want you to see that Paul has learned it. He's, he's not after anything from them. Um, and, and through the power of Christ at work in him, verse 13, he has learned this contentment. Um, so, but in verse 14 to 19... And we see why. He said, yes, it is good for you to share in my troubles. Verse 15, uh, moreover, as the Philippians, you Philippians know, in the early days in your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, just the next town, just up the street uh, from Philippi, uh, so when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. Now, this is what he's after. But I desire, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. You see that? I'm not after something from you. I'm after something for you. I want something you're giving to the cause of the gospel adds to your account, not Paul's account. Uh, he's rejoicing in... A, their continued partnership in the gospel. He's written this letter to them 10 years after, roughly 10 years after the church plant. And he says, in the early days, you were really full on about supporting the gospel ministry. I see that it's still there now. I rejoice in this, not because I'm getting gifts from you, but because it adds to your account. What account? It's their heavenly account, their heavenly treasures. Uh, take a look uh, in verse 18, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I receive from Epaphroditus the gifts he sent me. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. A fellowship offering in the Old Testament was given in the context of being in good fellowship with God. You, you'd offered your sin offerings. Uh, your sin was declared paid. Now you offer your fellowship offerings. That's you and God relating together and as you burned those offerings an aroma a, a, a pleasing fragrance went went to God that's how it was described it's like the smell of coffee in the morning a pleasing aroma it's like the smell of bacon any time of day a pleasing aroma how good's bacon yeah I, I don't know if you're vegetarian I, I don't know how you get past the bacon thing I, I can't do it uh, but that smell of bacon, you could have just finished breakfast and you smell bacon cooking again as, yeah, I could eat something else. Yep. A pleasing aroma, uh, a sacrifice before God. So they're giving to gospel ministry, our giving, our use of our resources for the cause of the gospel is an acceptable sacrifice to God and a, and a fragrant offering. We're doing it because we love him. We're doing it because we thank him for what he's done for us. We do it because we understand that apart from the gospel, no one else, uh, people will not be saved, cannot be saved. In verse 19, um, our team took a little time to chat about this the other day. Look at what it says. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Um, we were trying to think of, it turned out, 
not on purpose, but we're trying to think of all the times where, all the examples we could think of where this wasn't true. Does God really meet all the needs of his people? Um, it's easy for us. We live in middle-class Australia, doing pretty well. Property price in Brisbane's just boomed. Everyone's a millionaire. How good's that? Um, is that what Paul's talking about? Uh, it's a promise. He will meet all your needs. It's a good promise. means that... Well, anyway, let's... Um, I think Romans 5.8 helps me to understand that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God meets all our needs. We have an eternal inheritance. We, he watches over us in this life. He does. Uh, but the, the challenges that he sends, the trials that he sends, are for our growth and our good. And that's very dangerous for me to stand up here and say I don't particularly want any more of that. Uh, but through the gospel, basically, I have been freed to be generous and I cannot lose. Through the gospel, I have been saved, to, uh, freed to be generous and I cannot lose. You cannot overcapitalize on gospel ministry. Uh, William Wilberforce lived mid-1700s to early-1800s. Um, he was famous for his fight against slavery. And I think uh, something like three days before he died, um, the slavery bill uh, got moved. And uh, he'd achieved, he, so he saw that his goal was achieved, or that goal was achieved. Um, he was one of the founding members of uh, CMS, Church Mission Society. Uh, a very busy guy. Uh, he made a distinction and wrote about this distinction between the prevailing uh, religious system and real Christianity. I've got to say, he lived what he wrote. Uh, at the end of his life, he died a pauper, having used his massive fortune, which would have equated to about $300 million in today's terms. Uh, he died a pauper because he used his resources for gospel-centred purposes. He's, it wasn't just slavery. He did a, a heap of work <clears throat> um, and a heap of mission. But he put his money where his mouth is, didn't he? Now, the question for you is, do you think that today, as he stands in the safekeeping of his saviour, do you think today that he regrets any of that? Do you reckon? Not a chance. Not a chance. Gospel generosity is honouring honoring and celebrating our God. Now, I'm not, I'm, not saying don't be unthink, uh, I'm not saying to be unthinking about your generosity. But I am saying don't be shy. Don't be unthinking. Uh, do be, don't be unthinking. Do be shy. Um, give to gospel ministry, not only to our church. Okay? So I don't think you need to give just to our church. But look for mission. What missions grab, grab you? Uh, look at, pray for them. Support them with money. Uh, QTC. It's looking for some money at the moment, I think. It's a great college. It's pumping out great graduates who are gospel-focused, Christ-centred. Support that work. Other ministries uh, and missions which connect with you. Uh, I had an advice from an older Christian one time when he says, when you reconsider your giving, and I think we should do that 
every year, sit down with your significant other and consider your budget, consider your giving. Um, this is how he did it. When you start considering, you'll think of a number. Write that down. And then you'll start processing and thinking it through and then you'll come down and you'll reduce that number and come down and at the end you'll come out with another number. His advice was go with the first number. Go with the first. Don't be shy. You cannot overinvest in the gospel. Let the gospel shape your use of resources. Not because I want something from you, but because I want something for you. Well, uh, because I now live in Queensland, I did not have to move my clock one hour this morning. How good's that? No one turned up an hour late for church. That was pretty good going. In New South Wales today, I guarantee a guy called Rob will be one hour late for church. Uh, it happened every year. Um, yeah, so uh, a citizen of Queensland has in fact changed my perspective. Uh, so it changes my practice. It changes what I do. Being a citizen of heaven through the good news of the gospel changes our perspective. It changes our practice, how we live. How do you pick a gospel person? Paul says it's someone who is committed to gospel-shaped relationships and someone who's committed uh, to gospel sharing of resources. There was a guy who, uh, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> belief in the gospel, uh, belief in the gospel must change our life now. And if the gospel isn't the best news you've ever heard, then you haven't understood it. But if it is, it changes everything. So let's not be good people. Let's be gospel people. Amen.